The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Tubagale, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. And sometimes there are songs that I write that are just for me. I can't sing them. They're too, they're too special, they're too painful, they're too sacred. Um, but I sing them in the shower. I sing them when I'm walking down the road about to catch a bus and I sing them for the people who remain in my heart even though they're no longer here. Hey, I'm Courtney Yavenhauser and this is Up Next, your ticket to the most exciting artists and performers coming through the Sydney Opera House doors. Subject, subject, one. Join me backstage as we chat to a spectacular lineup of artists who are making waves on one of the most iconic stages in the world. Together, we'll uncover who's up next and how this moment in time is transforming the next 50 years of arts and culture. In 2020, Wong Kar Wai's cinematic masterpiece In the Mood for Love turned 20. To celebrate the iconic work from Hong Kong, three innovative Chinese-Australian performers reimagined it as a shimmering audiovisual dream. The show, In the Mood, was streamed live from the Opera House across the world in the peak of COVID lockdown and then returned for a special one-off in-person show for Vivid 2022. Today, we're chatting with Rainbow Chan, Australian vocalist, producer and interdisciplinary artist originally from Hong Kong. She's better known for her deeply original pop music and eccentric artistic expression, but she showcased the breadth of her talent as one of the performers and co-creators of In The Mood. She describes it as one of the most special experiences in her life. Behind the stage of the Opera House, Rainbow and I got cosy and had a chat about her first time performing there, bringing Hong Kong cinema to Australian audiences and all things love and loss. I want to start at the beginning of your career. When was it that you knew that you wanted to make music? I think I was always gravitating towards performance and music and I used to make little dances and make my family watch me do little performances in the lounge room. But I think there was a moment where it really clicked and I I took it more seriously, I guess. I sort of imagined that it could be a real future for me. I guess in high school, when I entered the talent quest. Oh, huge. <laughs> oh, man, it was exhilarating. I'd entered it in the kind of more junior years doing um, hilarious dancing to Christina Aguilera's Dirty. Oh, it my was, gosh, Rainbow, It was like... Your childhood is mirroring mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... I'm pretty sure the school took, like, VHS videos of every single year, and I um, asked them actually recently whether they still had a copy, and I think someone's destroyed it. So I'm no. both relieved but also devastated. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it was, like, year nine, I'd written my first song, original song, and I performed it 
um, in front of the school and it actually, it was like girls I'd never talked to in my grade suddenly, you know, um, came up to me in the corridor and was like, hey, I really liked your song. And then I think that kind of gave me a little confidence boost, but also saw the power of music to connect me to people. And that was really special. And I kind of just became a bit addicted to that kind of whole process. And I think that's when I really wanted to go, hey, I feel like I'm going to make music for the rest of my life. Yeah. Wow. From a talent quest. Yep. That's right. (laughs) I love that. Going back to like when you first started post talent quest, how would you describe your early style of what you were making in the, in those early days? In the early days, I think I just really wanted to be Bjork. I, I just really, I felt like I well, I was just obsessed with her and I, uh, at uni, I did my honours paper on her and I um, just loved her artist's vision um, and her um, her imagination. I mean, I don't even need to describe how amazing she is. I think everyone knows how amazing she is. But I think I was just really struck by her ability to translate these abstract landscapes and psychological, uh, I guess, states into very specific musical vocabulary, which she had invented herself. So thinking in particular like volcanic beats that she would make or um, string parts that would be reminiscent of Icelandic um, fisherman songs and how she was able to craft that into a very specific style and always push at the boundaries. So I think even though my music didn't necessarily sound like hers, I always adopted her ethos and her vision. And I think I was that really played an integral part in how I wanted to approach music and embed aspects of identity, um, being a female producer into my practice. So I think when I first started out, I would say I was less confident in those kind of conversations. Maybe I was testing out a lot of the ideas, but then over time it actually became more formalized, like themes that underpin my practice. Yeah. And in that kind of evolution as it went on, what do you think influenced that? Do you think it was just like confidence and experience or were there other things that kind of helped evolve the practice? It was a bit of both. I think inevitably, I think artists are always influenced by their life experiences. Um, I think also as a pop musician, you're generally drawing from autobiographical sort of encounters. So that that's always like the bed of a lot of my songs and music. But honestly, I think it actually was a reaction to how I was perceived maybe by um, the public or by, you know, I guess music journalism at the time, like 10 years ago, I think maybe at that point we hadn't really developed a very sophisticated language around identity and particularly as someone who's a woman and of um, Asian descent in Australia, I felt like I was very much pigeonholed into a particular category and the descriptions that were used weren't necessarily reflective of what I was actually making and it was maybe more stereotyped or kind of, you know, I couldn't be divorced from my body and the way that I looked, which at that time I felt was very unfair. I was like, my songs have nothing at that point really overtly to do with being Chinese or, but it was always a point of um, conversation, but not in a way that where I where it was on my terms, if you know what I mean. I kind of almost formalized it as 
a starting point so I could reflect those conversations back onto the person who might be asking me those questions um, and then make it more of a dialogue where it was more mutual and where I could actually challenge maybe some of those preconceptions or amplify them in a way that it gets a bit ridiculous or, you know, where it actually generates more conversation that is more about diaspora, really, about migrant families, migrant individuals, and that place of sort of not belonging really to either cultures, which you've kind of been immersed in and having to navigate that. But at the end, you kind of create these really interesting hybrid identities or conversations that connect with people in other ways. Yeah, it sounds as though um, you're almost like taking your power back, being like, if you want to have this conversation, I want to lead it, actually. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I love that. We're going to talk about the show that you performed at the Opera House in a bit. But before we do that, you've actually performed here a few times. Can you tell me about the first time? I believe it was in primary school um, at some sort of dance at Stedford I was possibly dressed as Pebbles from the Flintstones. <laughs> it all becomes a blur. Uh, even after that, there were um, I was in like children's choirs when I was young, so I think there were a few times where I'd performed in a like a big mass choir. But yeah, the Opera House was always you know it's such an iconic place you know in um, not only in the Australian imagination but internationally as well. I think when I was in Hong Kong, like the Opera House was something that. We, you know, we would associate with like Australia, the place we're going to move to. Um, so it was cool to be in, in there and performing. What were your thoughts about the Opera House before all of the choir performances? I think the Opera House has the image of being quite, I guess, in a way, you know, it's a bit elitist. <laughs> Opera is, you know, historically designated for a very particular type of audience and so I guess it was something that you know I I might have looked from afar and gone maybe I don't belong in that place or, or I'm not sure if I can go there kind of thing but then to be able to perform in there was really great to kind of smash that trope around what what this institution means. It's internationally recognized so it's like you know everyone sort of has this idea of it even though Yes. We don't all get to actually go in. <laughs> no, that's I mean? right. It's just that, you know, like I think people go, oh, what's that pointy white building in Australia? In fact, my youngest sister in year five, I still remember, she made this assignment and it was about Australian landmarks and she picked the opera house and she created a hat that was made out of felt that had that was like stuck to a bucket that she could wear on her head. Anyway, so, you know, it's just it's like something that, you know, is in everyone's vernacular, interestingly from the outside maybe but like I I don't know how you know I don't know how diverse of a of a of an audience maybe would be on the inside of it what's exciting is that there is a shift maybe in the in the voices that are represented in the programming of the opera house but also yeah the audiences are coming to the opera house I think there has been I guess I guess a recognition in maybe the the kind of, I guess, yeah, like historically what, what this place means and who it's for and stuff. And I think, you know, a, a good push now to think about the future and, and having this place be more inclusive. All right. So I'm keen to hear about the digital work in the mood. Can you tell me about it? 
So if you're not familiar with the film In the Mood for Love, it's about two people who live in an apartment block and they are married but not together. They're they're two separate couples Um, but they realise over time that their partners are cheating on them with each other and it's about them kind of reconciling um, the affair and in the process they sort of fall in love with each other but they don't want to be unfaithful to their cheating partners. So, yeah, it's that tension about this love that can't exist. In the old days, if someone had a secret they didn't want to share, they went up a mountain, found a tree, carved a hole in it, and whispered the secret into that hole. They covered it with mud and left the secret there forever. It was this kind of serendipitous moment where border closures were happening. This movie was about not being able to have the intimacy with someone that you yearn for or love, but also in the context of everything that was happening in the world and there were a lot of changes in Hong Kong at that point. It was a really special moment to go, hey, let's make a tribute to the filmmaker Wong Kar Wai and also Hong Kong. Um, So I'm from Hong Kong. That's my birthplace. The producer of the show, Alistair Hill. Alistair also has roots there too, his family, his mum's from there. So that's where the initial conversation came from. And then Marcus Whale was also involved, obviously. He he was the other lead, Eugene Choi and Sophie Penkethman-Young. So you gave a lot of like context of the time in which you did that production. How natural did it feel as a creative choice in that moment of your career outside of, I guess, the events of the world? It was probably the most ambitious project that I'd ever done and probably still is really in my career. I think um, the timeline also was quite tight. It was about five weeks between the conception and when it was going to be performed. And what was really interesting, I think, was the format of a digital live stream, something I'd never done before to this extent where there were like multiple cameras involved who were in the Joint Sutherland Theatre, you know, and it was, but it was a completely empty audience. So there was an uncanny feeling of you know, you're being watched, but there's no immediate feedback. And as a performer, that's really disorienting. And the other quirk was um, Marcus and I could not be next to each other because of the COVID restrictions. So we were always five metres apart and we had to figure out ways to represent the moments of intimacy and and connection between the two characters of the film, but physically literally had to be five metres apart. So we had to come up with creative sort of camera cutting techniques to make it look like we were next to each other and some like projections and animations. But it was really fun. It was like problem solving for this format, but it also allowed us to um, reflect some of the really specific cinematography in um, in the mood for love, particularly the use of like historical objects and and mirrors and windows and glass to shoot through mm-hmm. the camera eye, always being kind of refracted through objects, and then you see the figure that's always sort of distorted a little bit or warped and so we were able to achieve some of those really iconic 
moments in the film through uh, the camera techniques on digital screen, which, you know, is not as easily achievable in a live context in a theatre. And what was your relationship to Wong Kai Wai's films before doing this? Were they in your home growing up? Yes, they were. Less so when I was a child, but my parents were always um, using Wong Kai Wai as like a way to describe when something was too art house for them and they couldn't understand. So he kind of lived in my imagination as this kind of enigma. But as I was older and particularly as I was, you know, going back to the earlier conversation of like me reclaiming my cultural heritage and my identity, Wong Kar Wai became someone that was quite important because, you know, he was making all these really beautiful films that kind of crossed over into the mainstream or at least in the kind of Western world. And I found him a really interesting figure that was expressing a lot of social, um, cultural sort of tensions through love stories. And I felt like very connected to that style of storytelling which I do in all, all my pop songs basically. So yeah, Chunking Express was is one of my favorite films ever. Just love the color palette of his work and the I guess the slowness but also everything he does is like poetry. So I always loved his work. So it was such a honor to be able to be part of this project. And it was first live streamed in 2020, which you were talking about before, right in the middle of lockdown and empty theatre, bringing this show to Australian audiences and being a Chinese-Australian performer from Hong Kong, how did it feel to connect the cultures in that way? I think it was a really special time to present this work with the world sort of being, you know, on pause and having to stop you know, what everyone's used to doing, you know, we're so used to being productive, we're so used to having this mobility and it was a moment to actually stop and reflect on what was important in life, you know. And for me, one of those things was family, but it was really um, hard because a lot of my family in Hong Kong and I couldn't see them. What our um, production was able to do, I think, from conversations afterwards was allow other Australians to have those sorts of conversations around in, in particular, I think around diaspora and sort of people who have family elsewhere to, to think about, I guess, that longing and distance for home and what home actually means. And I know the story of In the Mood for Love is more, you know, it is more about love, but the, there is subtext there about belonging and identity. And I think, you know, as Australians, we live on stolen land. Like That is a very, you know, that is a conversation that's ongoing. So... I think the work has generated dialogue with, in particular, with other people who are Chinese Australians and who have Wong Kar Wai as part of their um, imaginations growing up. What kind of reactions did you get after it was streamed online? I mean, you didn't have that audience feedback, but did you get it elsewhere? I think this is one of the most special um, experiences I've ever had coming off the stage. I keep using that word special, but I, I really do feel like this this particular production will always have a very important part in my life. I felt it was really strange after we finished the performance. There was no audience applause. It was just completely empty and, you know, it was just like, all right, and we're done. And, like, the lights kind of turned on and it was really anticlimactic and very strange. And I walked back to the green room and um, turned on my phone and I received all these messages on WhatsApp from my family in Hong Kong who had 
been live streaming it and I didn't realize that they'd, you know, they'd actually gathered at a dinner and watched it together. And I just burst into tears. It was the best um, response I could ever get um, in that moment where we were so distant. It was, it, we were suddenly together, you know, it was just like I was embraced by, by those messages. But yeah, it was just, it's been really positive, um, the reaction. And we were a bit nervous because it's such an iconic film and we knew that, you know, we couldn't just do a copy of it and we, we had to kind of inject our own um, original, um, I guess, uh, take on certain aspects of the film. So I think we've created something that's a bit hybrid. Yeah, like has generated kind of extra conversations and that's been really fruitful. You were invited back in 2022 to perform it again at Vivid, in person, in front of an audience. What's it been like starting all the way back from year five at Steadford's, the choirs, you know, and then to moving into that moment? It was pretty damn cool. I think, um, yeah, like it was just I'd missed that feeling of um, sharing. You know, I think... And I think a lot of performers um, have felt this way as well after COVID and actually finally being able to perform to a live audience again is that 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 is such a privilege and it's such a sacred space to have that shared embodiment of a time and place together. And so I don't take it for granted anymore. I used to be like, oh, you know, I've got a show coming up. I've got to work. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, my goodness, how special is this? So, um, yeah, it was just fantastic. And because it was just a one, one-off one show as well, I really, you know, I think we really put our all into it. And what was really challenging, I guess, but also uh, rewarding was now how do we translate something that was made for the digital screen back to a live theatre context. And so one way we went about this was we had a big scrim that covered the entire front of the stage so that projections of the digital work, certain parts of it could then be um, superimposed over the top of our live moving bodies that was behind the scrim. And so there was this very intertextual um, layer, which was beautiful, and helped to um, still reference the filmic um, language that we've drawn inspiration from for this work. And, you know, subtitles were still able to be used because it's such an important part to the original film in Mood for Love. I think they really play with typography, poetry as texts that appear on the screen at certain key moments in the film. So, yeah, to be able to translate that to a live audience was really great we also did something a little bit um a bit whimsical where we (laughs) halfway in the show we actually left the stage and we went around the back unbeknownst to the audience and reappeared in the crowd fun and there was spotlights on Marcus and I and we sang a duet together from either side of the theater on the um stairwell and I could hear audible gasps. Yeah, I was just going to say what was happening in the audience. <laughs> they were like, oh, and that was beautiful as well. And so, and then from that point, we ran back onto the stage, and it was great because it was like the the 
I think we took the liberty in like making the performance immersive and really like using the whole theater because the first time we did it, we were collapsed onto a 2D screen. So this time we really wanted to make it 3D and alive. Yeah, in the thick of it. It sounds like you've put a lot of time and energy into this project and no doubt you have. What influences did you take away from that project that you're bringing into your new work? So I'd written um, some music actually just a little, just before the project started, um, and that was the song Heavy and Doing Word, which were both um, developed further for the show. Um, and at that time I was listening to a lot of Mandarin and Canto pop that, of my parents' generation, which um, actually co- like corresponds with the kind of timeline of In the Mood for Love. So after the show, I really um, built upon that material and reflecting on the role of nostalgia in identity formation um, and used the power of ballads and melancholy as a trope to um, explore um, the next record that I made, which was called Stanley, and it was an ode, I guess, to to these, um, yeah, to these ballads that I had listened to growing up, and in particular, a singer called Teresa Tang, Dun Lai Guan, who's like the most famous um, singer in East Asia. She's just very like she, everybody knows who she is, and she tragically died at a very young age, at forty two, from an asthma attack. So she's got this kind of um, tragic cultural legacy but like huge huge following so yeah the record was looking into um the role of melancholy and um really sappy love songs but also I was fascinated about the role that language and music um uh, how they interact in Chinese music because Chinese is a tonal language and so your melodies can't just dance around. They have to conform to um, how the language is spoken, the tones of the language. And so I noticed that Cantonese and Mandarin music have very particular melodic contours because of the the language. And I took that as a way to actually then write new songs. And even though most of my songs are in English, um, it was just playing with that tension between word and sound. We've been speaking about matters of the heart a lot and I have a confession. I first came across your music when I had a very sore heart and I found a lot of comfort in it, particularly your track Nest. And I'm interested to know where do you find comfort in those moments of heartache and of love and loss? I find comfort in actually vocalising my pain. Going back to that first talent quest, I had experienced my first heartbreak at 14 and it was like something, it was just like looking back on it now, you know, it was the worst pain I'd ever felt. It was just so... um, I guess maybe when you're a teenager, everything's a bit more amplified as well, but I'd never experienced that kind of heartbreak before. And, and and since, you know, I've gone through lots of other things as well and, you know, have become quite resilient. But I think when it's the first time your heart's broken, that's something that's just such a shock to the system. 
that you never really quite forget what that feels like. But I found writing music was a way to survive, was my way to navigate that pain, a way to navigate things that I felt were, you know, unfair or um, confusing and has always remained um, a tool for me to to ask questions when the world is just too chaotic and there's, you know, sometimes there is no answer, it is just chaos. And to just take a moment to um, hold space for those complexities. So the process itself is very therapeutic for me. And sometimes there are songs that I write that are just for me. I can't sing them. They're Mm. too too special, they're too painful, they're too sacred. Um, But I sing them in the shower. I sing them when I'm walking down the road about to catch a bus and I sing them for the people who remain in my heart even though they're no longer here. I feel like that's why music has existed since, you know, time. And also group singing, I think, ways that um, particularly women have used song to pass on knowledge, to create community, to express solidarity. The power of vocalising is healing, is very healing. And so what has been so magical about writing these songs for me is having moments like this where I meet people in the future who, you know, I never imagined another person would listen to my song. You know, it's just this, I, when I write it, I don't necessarily think about what, how it's going to travel and what the life of it is going to be afterwards. But when it comes back to me in this form where someone's gone, it's helped me through this time or, you know, I connected with this it's such a surreal moment. It's like these things that I experience can connect with other people and and become their own story and, you know, have their own life. I find that really, really beautiful. You've taken so many interesting pathways in your career so far and you seem to keep finding new and exciting ways to reinvent yourself and to practice as an artist. What's next for Rainbow Chan? What I've really appreciated, I guess, reflecting back on my career so far is the more lateral ways that my practice have evolved across different disciplines. I think, you know, when I first started, I imagined, you know, um, a very typical kind of conventional pop music career where I'd be a recording artist and I'd tour and, you know, try and get bigger and bigger and bigger and expand in that way going more vertically right but I think that for me was you know over time I didn't feel like that was as interesting and not sustainable as well and what I've loved is actually going horizontally across and meeting um, different people collaborating with different people across different fields so working in the visual arts worked in theater I'm a teacher as well, so I I teach at unis. All these different elements of my practice has really enriched, I think, my creative life. So the next big project I'm working on is trying to reimagine a collection of folk songs from Hong Kong, which I have been introduced to, uh, well, I was introduced to it a couple of years ago. So the story was that my mum is Waitao, which are the first settlers of Hong Kong. And um, she can speak a dialect, which is actually 
disappearing. It's a sort of connect, a little bit, it's related to Cantonese, but it's a dialect that is sort of on the brink of disappearance. And a couple of years back, I asked mom, can you teach me the language? And she was like, you know what? I think there are some songs in language that you could probably like learn and that would be easier for you to to understand not only just the words, but the lifestyle and the kind of the stories and, you know, um, um, yeah, like get a more holistic understanding of the culture. And so I reached out to some elderly waiter women in Hong Kong who know this music and from there, it's just been an explosion of knowledge that's been passed down to me. These women are like in their 80s, 90s, and they didn't receive a formal education. Everything for them was oral tradition. And so they learnt through songs and stories and through like crafts, like embroidering and weaving. And it would be women only sort of shared spaces where they would exchange this craft and knowledge. They were also in arranged marriages. So one very specific thing I've been learning is bridal laments, which are marital mourning songs that women would sing before they were married off. And it was a song cycle that lasted three days where they would sing in front of their friends and family and actually cry. It's called hokka. It's weeping songs. And they would cry because once they were married off, they were symbolically no longer part of this family. They were kind of severed. And, And then also when they were Um, You know, they'd never even met their groom most of the time. On the wedding day, they'd see the groom for the first time and then they would always be an outsider to that family too as well. So these bridal laments, these mourning songs are so incredibly sad and they're sung in the dialect and they reflect the landscape of Hong Kong pre-colonial days and it is just so rich in history and identity and um, women's voices that have not been um, documented very well and are still it's not mainstream knowledge at all. So what I've been doing is yeah relearning these songs but also trying to I guess see similarities of that kind of liminality as someone living in Australia with Hong Kong descent and trying to work out for me in my generation what this liminality means but what's been amazing in my practice now is that it's kind of come full circle. Like I've now able to re-teach these songs to my mum who didn't know how to sing the songs. And I imagine that, you know, hopefully I can teach it to the future generations too. And this project has been particularly rewarding in that it's connected me to a lot of other people who've experienced similar things, women Um, who, with Indigenous knowledge, who have passed on these oral traditions and, yeah, just just seeing parallels, even though it's very, very different, but, like, parallels between these stories. Gosh, those songs sound so devastating. Yeah, very devastating. But I guess I'm trying to, again, harness that the power of the pain to actually express also the resilience of the women yeah. and and also thinking about um, the resilience of the culture yeah. and the resilience of the language because it's not, yeah, it's not dead. It's, yeah. it's sleeping, it's, it's fading, but hopefully through, you know, making these songs um, 
like I guess I, I'm doing it as a like a multi-pronged project. I have an aspect of it which is more about conservation, preservation, um, but then there's another aspect where it's more generative and creative where I'm turning them into club songs or I'm turning them into, you know, something that might have auto-tune on the vocals. What's that going to, you know, like kind of connecting it to the aesthetic and the um, sonic palette of my um, authentic self um, and then that then connecting to a contemporary audience and then allowing those songs to have a revitalized sort of um, existence and that's been really cool. Yeah, for sure. As we've been recording this, you were listed as one of the 40 under 40 most influential Asian Australians and we've talked a lot about what's influenced you, what's influenced Rainbow, but what's it like being told that you're now somebody doing the influencing? I feel like there's always going to be a moment of kind of feeling like imposter syndrome and being like, wait, am I actually that influential? And I think it is also, you know, in in these sort of awards or acknowledgements, you don't ever, you know, represent everybody. Like, you know, there's so many other people that could be on this list. So it really is like a, a little bit of luck as well in being selected. But, you know, there is hard work. I obviously put a lot of effort and thought into my practice. So it's cool. But yeah, to know that um, there's a privilege there um, and a bit of a platform to um, promote other people as well, lift other people up is really satisfying and really rewarding. So I think especially in my teaching and mentoring practice, I try, you know, to to um, empower other people and give them the skills to tell their stories. So, yeah, I think if that's the influence that I can have, then that's great. It's great to have more diverse voices, um, more inclusive stories being told. So if I can contribute to that, then yay. You're talking about platforming other people and we always like to find out who you think could be up next. So I'm interested to know which artists or performers do you have your eye on or do you think are ones to watch? I have so oh I have so many, but um people that have really um struck me as like doing something really innovative. Um and so um they're actually uh well was one of my old students but on their own path now, fantastic performer. Um, they rap in Korean and English and their music is just so rich in its electronic soundscapes, in its grittiness, but then they sing with the most pristine Mariah Carey style, like melisma vocals as well. So there's a really interesting mix of references and styles that Anso creates in their music. Also, Indira Elias, incredible songwriter, beautiful vocalist. Her songs are just, they, when I first heard them, they just sound like they were classic songs that had been written already that, that I already knew somehow, but was just like unfolding in these like really poetic ways every single line every single melody just kind of floated into my ears with this ethereal uh, energy I love her music and yeah she's a great performer as well and also Ida Warhol harpist who and vocalist who was actually the harp player in in the mood again really just my goodness I would say probably my favorite songwriter performer she hasn't released 
much music yet. Uh, if at the time of this recording, I don't think any music yet, but please look out for her music. I think she's literally my favorite performer, singer, vocalist, harp player, incredible. Definitely one to watch. Thanks so much for coming in today, Rainbow. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Courtney. (laughs) That was Rainbow Chan, vocalist, producer and interdisciplinary artist. In the Mood is available to watch online for free on the Sydney Opera House streaming platform at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from Sydney actors Rahal Rahman and Lily Ballantich, who star in a brand new production of Peter Schaefer's Amadeus, opening at the end of this year. I'm Courtney Avenhauser, and this has been Up Next, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House. From Audiocraft, the show is produced by Bernadette Fung Nam Win, mixed by Glenn Morrow, and executive producer is Selena Shannon. From Sydney Opera House, Head of Digital Programming is Stuart Buchanan and Digital Programming Coordinator is Georgia D'Souza. The Up Next theme music is by Milan Ring. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.